Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and we have a special episode today. I know they're all special, but this one was recorded at Christ Covenant Church as a part of our Faithful Conference, which we host every fall. And we had the privilege of having Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist Church be our speaker. And he gave four addresses on healthy churches and healthy members from Saturday night and then through Sunday. And as a part of the Saturday evening session, I always interview our speaker, which uh, I enjoy. And Mark is such a good interviewer. And I was able to turn the tables and interview him. And hopefully you'll enjoy it. I think it's okay to say it was enjoyable. Uh, Hopefully entertaining isn't too strong a word. And hopefully edifying in there as well as we talked for about an hour about Mark's conversion and his ministry on Capitol Hill and life and, of course, books and a little bit of everything else, including uh, poking fun at each other, which is which is some of Mark's love language and I guess mine as well. So hopefully you will enjoy that and uh, will benefit from the conversation we had. I want to mention before we get started with that from Crossway. Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms, a Reader's Edition, edited by Chad Van Dixhorn. Chad's a good friend of mine, and Chad uh, has done a great job with this book, and Crossway has done a wonderful job putting together creeds, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Canons of Dort, Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, all sorts of creeds and confessions in this really handsome reader's edition. In fact, before Mark drove back up to D.C., we went to the RTS bookstore. He got a stack of books, including two copies of this book, Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms, edited by Chad Van Dixhorn. So do look for a copy. It's very useful. You'll want to have it. And then also, speaking of uh, Chad's employer, Westminster Theological Seminary, a book put out by Westminster Seminary Press, which would be a good one to check out as we come into the Advent season, called The Coming of the King, 25 Daily Readings for Advent by J.C. Ryle. I hope Hope you have read J.C. Ryle before. His most well-known book is Holiness, but everything Ryle writes is clear and punchy and to the point and edifying. So this is a great book to pick up, maybe give it away for a gift for Thanksgiving or Christmas. WTS Books has it on sale for up to 56% off. That's just $4 per copy. If you buy in case quantity, maybe a giveaway at your church. The Coming of the King 25 Daily Advent Readings from J.C. Ryle. And now, hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Dever. Glad to have you with us as we will go for another 45 minutes. Mark said... Is this really going to be interesting for 45 minutes? I said, well, you have something to to do with whether it is or it isn't. So we'll see if we go 30 or 35 or 45. But I uh, love to be able to do this. I enjoy getting to ask my friends questions. Mark, as he said to me earlier, he's usually the one who does interviews with people and asks questions. So maybe some other time. You can come back and just ask me questions. But tonight I'm asking Mark questions about life and ministry, and it's a way to to learn from our brother and to get to know him better and hopefully to enjoy uh, eavesdropping in on this conversation. We are recording it, and I will put it out on 
the, my podcast, Life and Books and Everything, so that will come out. And if you're listening to this next week on the podcast, glad to have you. This is recorded on Saturday night at the Faithful Conference at Christ Covenant Church. So, Kevin, can I ask you a question? Okay. <laughs> Let's say that your guest actually was married by a North Carolina Presbyterian pastor 40 years ago. This guest? Th- Tell us more. Guest. And let's say this North Carolina Presbyterian pastor retired to the Charlotte area. And let's say I were wondering if anyone here was in contact with said pastor. Mention said pastor? Uh, Ed Henniger? Anyone? Anyone. Ed? Ed. Ed's not here tonight. Just come up and find me if you've got any info about Ed. All right. Ed and Judy Henniger. Is he still around? I don't know. With the Lord? I don't know. Okay, well, we will, uh, Ed, if you're listening. He was an Marcus, awesome pastor. Great, wonderful. We're going to get to your bio in just a moment, but just following up, really appreciate what you said, the emphasis on conversion. And I didn't, I didn't get a pricey on your talk, so I didn't know you were going to talk about the believe, belong, but I'm glad you did because that is very popular, has been for the last 20 years or so. Now, you... I think made clear at the end that when you talk about believing before belonging, you don't mean you're not welcome to come and hear our sermon until you become a Christian, or you're not welcome to join our home group for a barbecue as we, you know, play games together. That's not what you're saying. Not at all. When Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples. The world must somehow see that. So I'm not suggesting that we have a a kind of uh, Amish retreat from the world uh, as a kind of surprising mission strategy. Uh, No, I I think the distinctiveness of our lives lived among the world is what God uses to draw people. And certainly in our services, we very much want to have non-Christians present, I'll often say when I'm preaching from the Bible, uh, please open, it's found on page 709 in the Bible's provided. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. If you don't have a copy of God's Word you can take with you, just take that one. Consider it a gift from our church to you. Uh, we would love to have you, uh, for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, uh, so I'm always addressing non-Christians, but we don't um, determine what we're gonna do in the service based upon non-Christians and will they understand it. I was really struck by the line you said because I've heard it before and it's, it's well-intentioned, that line, and when you become a member at the church, that's when the church stops being for you. I understand the impetus is... I think it was made well-known by a preacher here in this city. Uh, perhaps. Um, to, to bring people in an outward facing... Charlotte just gives us so many gifts. There are many gifts. On the re- behalf of the rest of evangelicalism, we thank you. Yes, well, we thank you. Uh, and we're, we're glad that we could marry you. Yes. So, uh, unpack a little bit more. What's the problem with that statement? Isn't that just wonderfully evangelistic? Uh, it's to misunderstand what the church is about. The church is not a stationary Billy Graham rally. The church is far more than that. Uh, it's, it's not here merely to invite people to faith in Christ. It's here as a family to grow people up in Christ over decades. Well, Paul says very clearly to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, all things must be done in the assembly 
for the edification of the church. So that's the ruler you use to figure out what do we do at church? What has God told us to do? What will build up his people? Yeah, and, and we understand some people can be a part of church as consumers, and if they are, there's a fair likelihood they may not be converted if they're just here to… They could be immature. Yeah, or immature. But so at our church in Washington for about 10 years, sitting right up in the balcony was, was uh, one friend who lived about half a block down, and he was a, a self-identified agnostic. But he was there very regularly. Well, I was very glad to have him there. You know, I would sometimes in my sermon say things really just for him. You know, uh, but that, I, didn't, I didn't calibrate my whole sermon to him. I calibrated my sermon to the members of the church. So let's back up. Did you grow up in the church? I grew up at the First Baptist Church of Madisonville, Kentucky. And when did you become a Christian? Are you aware I'm, of the time? Yeah, I became a Christian as a teenager. What was that story? Because I have it correct, you at least went through some time of being an atheist or an agnostic, hostile yeah. to the claims of Christ? Yeah, I was, not an, I was very proud of never being an atheist, but I was an agnostic. Uh, you know, an atheist says no God, an right. agnostic says no knowledge, no certainty. And I would say from ages 10 to 13. Now, how did you come to that at 10? How does it, I mean, it happened, how does a 10-year-old decide I'm an agnostic? So, so neither of my parents went to college. But at our home, the music that played all the time was classical music. Uh, we had uh, encyclopedias that I just read voraciously. I'm seeing the problems. And, and, <laughs> and Dad had bought the Harvard Classic series along with the, the encyclopedia set in the 1950s. And I literally, when I was 10, read the entire thing. I mean, I read the Iliad, I read the Rubaiyat, I read the, the Socratic Dialogues of Plato, I mean, just the, the Quran. You were a fun, a fun 10-year-old to be around. <laughs> Man, we, I was out in the country. There was no neighborhood. There weren't other kids to play with. I just sat and read all the time. Yeah. Served you well. Yeah. Except you became an agnostic. Well, it's because I was kind of on a search for the meaning yeah, of life. right. You know, I thought, this is going to be a skeleton in a box soon. And when I'm 10 and 11, that's what I'm thinking about. This is going to be a skeleton in a box really soon. Is there anything I'm supposed to know about this life? And what brought you to the answer? Uh, I looked at different philosophies, and then that I sort of exhausted them. And then I looked at different religions. And I looked at Christianity last because I assumed I knew it growing up in America. But then when I did read the Gospels, Jesus surprised me with things that seemed common and I took for granted, and others that seemed strange. And then finally, it was more of the historical question of trying to figure out what happened so that this Messiah figure, this leader who was crucified, which seemed to be historically reliable knowledge that he was crucified, how come a few days later all of his disciples who were betraying him or deserting him or denying him or scattering from him a few days earlier, why are they all back together telling the same strange tale about him getting up from the dead? Hmm. And then they, they don't they don't uh, hide, they like all end up dying for telling the same strange tale all over the world. So something happened and it was me just working on trying to think through as clearly as I could from the crucifixion to the resurrection or Pentecost really, what happened. And I realized while I was doing that that I was reading and rereading the gospels, but I was reading them like Thomas Jefferson, assuming hmm. that the supernatural was not true. 
And when I, when I realized that the supernatural, I didn't know the supernatural wasn't true. I, I didn't know there wasn't a God. I was not an atheist. I was always very proud of not being an atheist. To me, an atheist was in a worse position intellectually than a Christian. Because at least a Christian thinks there's a source for absolute knowledge. The atheist admits there's no source for absolute, absolute knowledge, yet makes this absolute claim. So to me, that seemed an intellectually ridiculous place I didn't want to be in. So agnosticism, who can say, I'm not sure, seemed the way of wisdom. So I realized I was reading the Gospels like an atheist, and I was kind of embarrassed in front of myself. And so I thought, okay, I guess I don't know there isn't a God. I don't know there isn't this God. I guess I should read this stuff at least once, as if this could all be true. So was this when you were in high school or in college? high school. High school. And then you went where for college? Duke University. Duke University. And what did you study there? Double majored in medieval history and New Testament studies. And you were already a Christian. I was a young Christian. A young Christian. Did you find opposition? Did you find intellectual questions that upset your young Christian faith when you went to Duke? Uh, I found a lot of opposition. Uh, I didn't find questions that upset my faith because I had become an agnostic. I mean, rather, I had been an agnostic gone before through, yeah. I became a Christian. So my agnosticism, I already had the problem of evil and all the, the things that the, some profs would raise in objection to Christianity. So I'd already thought about those. So that was, no, Duke's, Duke's liberalness in religion was interesting to me and useful filling out of stuff I'd already been thinking about. We were joking earlier, your, your wife has said this about you, that you're always confident, sometimes right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Thus, Kevin would say, I'm a very happy Baptist. Yes, oh, very, very happy. Very, uh, a Baptist greater than which none can be conceived. Yes. Uh, that's a comment on my weight, well, Kevin. I, uh, so, no uh, were, did you have that confidence as, as a young Christian? Yeah. You're, you did. And were you sharing your faith when you went to All Duke? All the time. You were sure about this? Yep. And owing somewhat to your personality? I think a lot. In a God's lot. Providence, yeah. So, uh, how. You know, normal means of grace. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Your height is part of your leadership. Something. Your mental quickness. Yeah. John Piper drinks energy drinks before he goes in public. Yeah. Uh, People think it's the Holy Spirit, <laughs> it's energy drinks. There's not a thing in the world wrong with using normal, normal means, ordinary means. He's so passionate because he's so short. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying saying the caffeine energizes. Yeah, I I understand. So what do you, uh, so there is, he uses means. He's sovereign over the amount of serotonin wandering around in my brain. So I'm talking about uh, evangelism. It can seem like, is evangelism just for extroverts? No. Max Stiles' little book called Evangelism is really good for this. He shows how it's the work of the whole church. And not everybody's gonna have the same function in evangelism. So I, I think that there are people who prepare the meal, there are people who present the right. meal, there are people who invite to the meal, there are people who talk to you during the meal. It's all part of evangelism. Because I've been with you and you're, I wish I were the sort of personal evangelist I've seen you be, just don't have a problem telling people things, starting up conversations, that's, uh, a natural ability that the Lord's honed for spiritual purposes? Or would you describe it as something more? No, it sounds fine. Would you have a gift of evangelism? I don't think so. No? You like to talk to people. You like, if, you're, if someone's sitting on the plane 
Ja. Do you hope that they talk to you? I mean, I would like them to be converted. Yes, I'm with you. Um, it kind of depends on how much I've got to do. Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> I fly a lot. I, I get tired. I, you know, I, I yeah. Anyway, I, I, often, like... I often have my assistant sitting between me and whoever the next person is. Yeah. But he'll be faithful in evangelism. And I'll support him in it. Uh, I'll tell the story myself. We were flying to California, and you know, Barry, who works with me, was sitting in the middle, and there was another person over here. It turned out he was a pastor because we were flying to the same conference. So it, wasn't, it was a good, good guy to talk to and flying to Dallas, and uh, they talked the whole way. We got off at Dallas, and I just said, Barry, I'm really sorry. You really took one for the team. And he said, are you kidding? That was the greatest two hours of my life or something like that. Uh, and they just had a great time yeah. talking. And so I really appreciate that. I would, I would hope that the person would say, can you tell me the gospel? And then I tell them and they say, thank you. I believe. And then I could go back and then I could share it on Sunday and people would say, wow. What a personal thing. Well, okay. So here's the tip. The next time you're at the grocery store and you don't do the self-checkout, but you actually get yeah, through the yeah. line. Just when you're there at the person at the cash register, just say, hey, how was, how was the sermon at church on Sunday? See what they say. You can say that here. People yeah, will just throw it out there. See what, you say. See what they say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember several years ago at a meeting in Grand Rapids, and Harry Reeder was there. He's another good at talking to people and evangelist, and just, how can I pray for you? Every, you know, mm-hmm. that's another good line. Yeah. People very rarely uh, will turn down prayers. Yeah. One of the things I've heard you say, uh, I've repeated it, so I hope you said it, that uh, perhaps the chief thing you pray as you think about evangelism and specific people is the conviction of sin very true. in their life. Very it true. really has stuck with me. What, yeah. Why is that so important? Well, it's very much like what I was talking about tonight. It's, if, if we talk to people about Jesus, but they don't understand themselves as having any need for a Savior, then other than them hearing from us about someone that we admire, what we're saying doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, some of you will have heard of Ray Comfort and Way of the Master. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray is a New Zealand brother who is a uh, tireless evangelist. And Ray really specializes on using the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. with non-Christians as a way to help them see their own sinfulness and you can go online and watch him doing this in, in countless interviews with people at the local college. And uh, while I don't think you have to do evangelism that way, it is a good example of what I'm saying, that you need the law's conviction before the gospel sounds like the good news it is. Go back to, uh, you went to Duke. When do you start to feel a desire for ministry, or do people tell you you should be a pastor? Well, it, I mean, it doesn't finally happen until in uh, 1993, I visit the Capitol Hill Metropolitan Baptist Church in Washington. It had the name there. Metropolitan in it? Uh-huh. Preach there in view of the call. And then um, in, a, in my prayer time on the Monday of that weekend, I just feel a particular conviction that this is what the Lord wants me to do with my life, which I was not expecting at all and really was not kind of pleased about. We'll come back to that, but you, so you went to, before that, you went to Cambridge. To do a PhD. You did a PhD teach. at Cambridge. To teach historical theology. You're going to teach historical I theology to be at Kevin Southern Young Baptist? When I grew up. Yeah, at, at Southern Baptist Seminary? 
Yeah. Or just whoever would have you? Either. Either. Uh, and who did you study with? At Cambridge? Yeah. My supervisor was Eamon Duffy. Oh, you're right, 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 right. And you did Richard Sibbs. That, give us a, a, a minute on Sibbs. Born, who was he? Born 1577, died 1635, never married. Anglican, uh, evangelical preacher, master of St. Catherine's College in Cambridge, preacher at Gray's in London, most famous book, The Bruised Reed, wonderful meditations on the mercy of Christ. So never married. Is there a, that a, a, a tradition among Anglican evangelicals? Most of the Puritan think? ministers that we yeah. read, John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, were in fact married, and it's usually their sons who end up doing the biographies and keep things. Sibs never married. There was nobody to keep his his life record, and, and uh, we ha- never had a biography written by a contemporary of his. But yes, there are, you're referring to I'm just Charles John, Simeon, and, yeah, John, and John Stott. Stott, Dick Lucas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is a kind of a minority tradition of unwed ministers. So when were you wed? You said 40 years? I was wed in June of 1982. And when did you meet Connie? In uh, September of 1979. Was she at Duke or Gordon-Conwell? Duke also. Duke. Okay, so you went to Gordon... Same year at Duke. All right. So you went to Gordon-Conwell. Yeah. As did you. As did you. And uh, are you going to visit it before they sell it? Well, yes, I know, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. Yeah. So more on that later. It's the two of us. Okay. Okay, yeah. So you were there. Good experience at Gordon-Conwell? Oh, great experience at Gordon-Conwell. It was wonderful. And who was really influential for you there? Roger Nicole? Oh, my goodness. I mean... Uh, this was in the 70s. Did you overlap with Tim I, Keller? Tim's a, year, uh, Tim's a decade ahead of me. Yeah. So I know I, I, know I look old. But, no, you don't. Uh, look at... You know, Do Tim. you dye your hair? I could use some help. I know you don't. Just keep going. I, just think it's just, <laughs> I would never dye my hair. Uh, and I think white hair is a sign of honor. It is. I respect you. Yeah, thank you. I come by it very naturally, that common grace. Do you dye that color? Since I've been 30. Uh, Anyway, uh, Gordon Conwell, uh, Roger Nicole, uh, Gordon Fee, um, David Wells, Meredith Klein. uh, I mean, just spectacular professors. But you went there not thinking you were going to ministry yet? Oh, I actually, I went there thinking of pastoral ministry. That was about the only six months that I did. Oh, okay. Um, but as soon as I get there, Nigel Kerr, church mm-hmm. history prof, was he still there when you came? No, nope. building named after him. Yep, yep. Uh, William Nigel Kerr, wonderful man, uh, took me for a walk and just said, I, I was in his uh, English Puritanism seminar, and he just said, listen, you're, you're very clever. You, you really just need, you need to do a PhD and teach. And I kind of wanted to do that. I, I like studying and teaching. So uh, I, I leapt at that and didn't think much more about it and just immediately shifted to thinking more academically and thus I went on after that and did a THM and then the PhD, which I would never have done if I were just gonna go into the pastorate. Why get a PhD? You're gonna go into the pastorate? Well, I ask you, Kevin, why? why get <laughs> but you have one, so you were there thinking of teaching yeah. and this this church found you? Yeah. What's the history of the church? Founded in 1878, um, right on the same corner we're in now, same statement of faith. It's always been an evangelical church. Because I said metropolitan that was, was, often, metropolitan was often a name for liberal I churches. I assume it was, well, no, I assume it was named after Spurgeon's Metropolitan Well, Tabernacle. right. 
at the time, which would be the, the most well-known Baptist church in the world at the time, at the nation's capital of England, right in the center, so they, with hope, would have named this church the same. And it was, what role did Carl Henry play in having you come? Carl F.H. Henry, a theologian in the 20th century who helped found Fuller Seminary, the National Association Christianity of Evangelicals, Today. Christianity Today, uh, moved to Washington, D.C. in 1956, 57, to found Christianity Today, and started there. And he joined the Metropolitan Baptist Church, as it then was uh, called. And years later, 1993, they lose their pastor. He's been there for over 30, Carl has been there over 30 years as a member. I know Carl for about 10 years through various things. He writes me at Cambridge and says, hey, we've just lost our pastor. I think you might be a good one for this. I'm going to put your name forward. If you're interested uh, in coming to preach for us, just contact this person. And so you went. You, you weren't thinking about pastoral ministry? No, I, I was going to be back in the States. I was living in England. I was going to be back in the States that summer teaching a class at Beeson on either English Puritanism or Jonathan Edwards. I did both, and I don't remember which I taught that summer. And I said, listen, I've got a free weekend. I can fly up and preach for you that weekend if you want. And so I did. And how many people were there? At the 130, maybe. Older congregation? Very old. So it, they were 70s, 80s, and 90s. But we love you. We love all of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were good. They treated they you well. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, you know, what, I, I went there as the pastor. I began in 94. And for the first couple of years... You know, if, if we take this as roughly the, the sort of shape of our church, because it is kind of like this. Yours is much more beautifully done and larger. But if you imagine a smaller, older, uglier version of this, it's our church building. Um, it's very stately. It is more it's cramped. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we have four major intros and exits. And in, in 94, 5, 6, 7, at every door, there's a man in his 90s. You know, Homer, Calvin... Uh, Mr. Trainum, Charlie. Uh, and so they were all in their 90s. So you were 34? Three, 33. Yeah. And almost 30 years. And just tell us, uh, to God's glory, but what, what has happened at the church in those some 30 years? Yeah, we've, we've seen a, a lot of people come to know the Lord. The congregation has grown. Um, we have tried to help out other Baptist churches in D.C. You've planted how many churches? I'm not sure. Uh, Dozens? Some. Oh, no, 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 no. Five, six, some. eight, seven. Yeah. Um, but, you know, help to put pastors in churches and recover churches. So there would be, you know, 10 to 20 churches in the area that would think of themselves as kind of daughter churches of Capitol Hill during my time there. Now, Metropolitan had actually planted churches in the 1950s. So there's another generation of churches out there that were planted by that church then. So. Does being in D.C. suit you? I feel like this is a good fit for Mark well, Dever. Yes and no. Um, yes, in that, uh, you know, w w we have senators at church, and it doesn't intimidate me at all. Uh, I, we had the Senate Majority Leader coming for a while, and this one Sunday, you know, he, he was going out, and I'm always standing at the door at the back, and he was saying, Mark, my wife and I want to join this church. We've, we've been here a couple of years now, and we've not joined, and we'd really like to join them. You know, in our church back home, you walk forward at the end of him, and you all don't do that here, so we don't know how to join. How do we join this church? And I say, well, Senator, you go to the membership classes. There are six of those, and then when you're done, you meet with an elder, you share your testimony, and then that goes to the congregation. And he said, well, Mark, I don't have time for all that. Elections are coming up. I'm going to be gone. You're not going to see me again until November. And this guy was the Senate Majority Leader. 
at the time. And I just said, Senator, we'll be here when you get back. <laughs> you know, just like, so. uh, were you earlier at some point, were you ever tempted to have more of a political ministry? Because you could go either way. You're in D.C., you've mm-hmm. got to talk about it, or, you know, it's really easy because everyone's talking about it, and it's easy just not to. Were you tempted to, to not, be more of a political ministry? No. Though I myself, before I was a Christian... You're very interested in these things. And after I became a Christian, wanted myself to go into politics. So the irony of me ending up on Capitol Hill and having lots of ideas about lots of stuff going on and not feeling I can talk about it at all is like the Lord's humor toward me. (laughs) So you put me on Capitol Hill for my entire life and I cannot talk to anybody about anything that I think. (laughs) All right then. Not even a diary, a journal? No, I just don't. I mean, here, here, perfect example happened early on in my time there. One of the members of our church was the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, the Senate Finance Committee, which is arguably the most important yeah, yeah. committee in the mm-hmm. Congress because every dollar of the U.S. government has to go through that committee. And uh, he was getting pressure to vote for a balanced budget amendment. It had passed the House. It lacked only one vote passing the Senate. It had a Democratic senator voting for it. He was the only Republican senator not voting for it. Great pressure for him to vote for it. He calls me down to come and talk to him about it. Uh, I have strong opinions on it. I don't agree with my senator, my member, but I don't tell him that. He says, Mark, it's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. They've had Billy Graham call me. I mean, he, he said it's just he'd never, he'd been there 36 years as a senator. That he'd never seen anything like this. And uh, so he asked me, what, what, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, Senator, I have very strong opinions about this particular amendment, um, and I will exercise my thoughts on that at the ballot box, which, of course, living in D.C. doesn't mean a thing in the world. You know? <laughs> um, but I said, I could be wrong on what I think about the balanced budget amendment. I'm not wrong on Jesus Christ. And the role he's called me to have in your life has to do with Jesus Christ. So I don't want to confuse those roles. And to press in on that a little more, if he had asked... If it were clearly more issues... If it were clearly a, the Bible gives an yes, answer then I would to this question. say something, yeah. popular or not. But I don't think consumer debt is the same thing as the national debt. Uh, I don't think Romans speaks to our national debt as being morally wrong. I think our national debt is an economic measure of what the economists who create the money supply and control it feel the worth of our economy is. It's just, it's just a different kind of thing. I don't think it's a clearly moral thing. Whether or not I think it, what we are currently doing with it is a good idea, I can't say it's a one-for-one moral matter. So I didn't feel I had a voice that I could legitimately use my role as pastor in my members' ears who was a a senator. Did you say something uh, in the pastoral prayer after Roe was overturned? Yes. Yeah, because there you get into a clearly moral issue. If it's a Burgerfell, if it's Roe, you know, when it touches issues that are clear in Scripture, then partisanship just fades. Partisanship doesn't matter. Both the parties can line up opposed. Both parties can line up in favor. They can split between them. That's irrelevant. But when there are differences that are not fundamentally 
indisputably they moral. They include some matters of prudence and you level have to be experts. Of taxation. In a, right, right. You know, it's not, it's not a totally amoral issue, but it's not so clear. Right. So, campus outreach. Yeah. In 2010, yeah. Campus Outreach Charlotte yes. sent a group to Washington, D.C. Yeah. to start a campus ministry. Yeah. And is that still going? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, well, and then Dave Russell came back here. Yeah, well, it was Mike Ross yeah. who was the pastor uh-huh. here then. And so uh, Christ's Covenant uh, passed off a sort of regional leadership for a new region to Capitol Hill Baptist. And uh, we, it took our church a, a while to decide this. Dave Russell, who was the CO leader, spent some years cultivating our eldership uh, in, in the best political sense. And uh, it finally worked. And then he came and moved and, and lived there and was an elder with us and led the ministry and did a superb job before he moved back down here and sort of replanted Oakhurst Baptist over on Monroe. No. Yeah, up in Cotswold. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, very good church and recommend people who want a lot of Baptist church go there. Yeah. So we pray for them and they pray for us. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book you've written? That I've written? Yeah. I mean, none of them. I mean. Do you uh, like writing books, Mark? I don't think I'm a great writer. You like having written books? Not particularly. And you don't like writing them? Do you like writing sermons? No. Do you like preaching sermons? I do like preaching sermons. <laughs> and do you? And I like studying the Bible. You like studying the Bible. I love studying the Bible. And do you like to be around people? I love being around. People. <laughs> you are you like to be around people. Yeah. When, when when I get too old to preach, I just make me the receptionist. I would love to talk to people and see how they're doing. And, you know. Mark will put on Twitter. Uh, I'm working on my sermon on John right now in my study. Anybody got any insights on verse 5 or yeah. anybody in the area want to come up and study with me? I don't think that's true. Yeah, but no, but you, but, okay, but you have, I've been in your study yeah. when you're working, yeah. and you love to have people just drop yeah. in. and Yeah, because I can, I can drop in and out of my work. Yeah. So I'm doing my work, but if I want to know what somebody thinks of something, I can just say, hey, any thoughts about this, and I'll throw out an idea. I love having the kind of flash response. You like to be surrounded by people. Yes. I mean, maybe not always, but yeah. a lot. Yeah. Not every person, but yeah. some people. Yeah. You, yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, is that, uh, I, you know, the senior pastor's personality does permeate yeah. into the congregation yeah. for good and for ill. Yeah. What, what is, is that hard for the congregation to, to keep up with you? I mean, there are hundreds of them. No, I mean, I think they're fine. They're, uh, I don't know. I, do they feel I got to be having, I got to be as extroverted as Mark? I don't think so. Okay. Good. And your wife likes to have all the people around, or as long as they're upstairs and she can be downstairs? Yeah. Well, Connie is more normal, I would say. So yeah. She's, she's not a huge introvert, but she's not a huge extrovert. But she's, you know, if we're going to have somebody over for dinner, she's the one who suggested it, not me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, if you are in D.C., you should visit Capitol Hill Baptist, and just to picture it, there's a parking lot, and then... Well, for four cars, I mean, please Yeah, walk right, it's there. very small. You know, Uber, don't, but don't bring you, your car. Mark's, Mark's house, townhouse, yeah. whatever, yeah. Uh, is right there. You can see the church. You have a 30-second walk, and then there's others that have, and you've, you've bought up some of the other yeah. buildings around. So bought, it makes community easier. We built five easier. new houses 
Have you seen it since the new houses that we built in? No, just your oh, pictures you of it. Come. I haven't been there since then. Come up with an excuse to come to D.C. All right, well, I, I, if I have a friend who can invite me, I'll yeah. find a way to come. You know, RTS has a campus up there. Yeah, it's yeah. very good. So, um, Colin Hansen has written a book on Tim Keller that's coming out, and it's about becoming Tim Keller. He's tracing Tim Keller's influences. So I From said, his rural Virginia pastorate. Yeah, well, that's one of the, but I think even before that, sort of what are the intellectual influences on Tim Keller, and, and Colin says it's Ed Clowney, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis. Okay? That's good. I've asked uh, uh, Justin Taylor, who's an expert on John, John Piper's Piper. life. Yeah. So what's, what's John? He said yeah. it's clearly four. It's his parents, it's C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, and Dan Fuller. Yeah, that's, uh, yep, that's good. You that's would have right. guessed that. Yeah. Do you have such a list of two, three, four seminal influences, living or dead, on your life? I don't have as small a list yeah. as that. There are a lot of authors that I like. Who would be some of those? Um, Calvin, John Gill, um, C.H. Spurgeon, uh, John Bunyan, um, Martin Luther, Augustine, kind of C.S. Lewis. Uh, more, kind of a love-hate affair with C.S. Lewis, but yeah. Um, a lot of our friends have C.S. Lewis, and I'm with you. I mean, I certainly, he, he's an amazing well, writer. There's lots of things to yeah. pull from. Uh, he's never well, been my go-to When guy. I read him, and I haven't read him in a while, he's always better than I expect. Um, and we're like, oh, that's insightful. Wow, that's well expressed. But if you ever try to start relying on him like you would Calvin, he disappoints badly. No, no, you should not, re- you should yeah. not think, yeah. I'm going to have C.S. Lewis shape my theology. No. Yeah. You should think, uh, going to have some penetrating yeah. insights yeah. into our world, so the human well spirit. Yes. He's like a much better version of G.K. Chesterton. I like G.K. Chesterton too. Well, G.K. Chesterton has a wonderful style, but he's a Roman Catholic bigot. There's some of that. I mean, he really misrepresents Protestantism. Oh, yes, for badly. sure. For sure. So I don't care how eloquent he is. He distorts things so much. I never recommend a book by G.K. Chesterton. We just read him in our staff. And when I quote him... <laughs> And when I quote him in my sermons, I will not even say his name. I will just say as one author has said. Well, because I do not want anyone to read G.K. Chesterton because of me. Well, I, I, I like G.K. Chesterton and, and rummage out the uh, very stereotyped bigotry towards Calvinists. So, uh, anyone else? Not G.K. Chesterton. Got that? I mean, li- living influences, Harold Purdy, the Baptist pastor in, in my church growing up, I think was a good influence. Um, Ed Henniger, the Presbyterian pastor that I attended at Blacknell in Durham in college, was a great model. Um, More Rob- recent, Lloyd-Jones? Or were you not a Lloyd-Jones guy? You didn't cut your teeth reading or listening to his no. sermons? I no, mean, I mean, I like him, but I, I didn't read Lloyd-Jones until I was in college. And by then, I've, I've kind of encountered almost everybody, like Sibs, uh, who's going to be huge to me. I would say a lot of Ian Murray's books have been influential for you. Oh, I love Ian Murray's stuff. That's right. But Ian, although he's 30 years older than me, for some reason, he feels more like a contemporary. Maybe because I've known him for so long and I've seen him write the books and I agree with him on what he says. So what are some of the people don't know Ian Murray, started Banner of Truth? Ian Murray started Banner of Truth. He's a wonderful brother. He's 91, 92, now lives in Edinburgh with his wife, Jean. And he writes history that you will like to read because he tells you not only what happened, 
but the significance of what happened. And his theology is good, he believes the Bible is true, he believes God is sovereign, and he will, he will, will read history in a way that is much more spiritual. And that says he's like the Puritans of old, yeah. only oh, writing yeah. today. Yeah. And I love it. I very much appreciate it. Uh, what, are your, what are one or two strengths of Mark Dever as a pastor and one or two weaknesses? They're usually, um, the inf- I mean, they're usually related. Yeah. Uh, strengths, um, I really do love the Lord, really do love people. So I'm... Uh, and you love the Bible, really. Those are Bible. three indispensable... It's very easy for me to give myself to studying the Word. I, I love doing it. Um, so the most important things about being a pastor, and I love praying. So the most important things about being a pastor are things that I, I love to do. Uh, you know, downsides, I don't think I'm the most empathetic person in the world. So if you're struggling with something, I understand you're struggling with it. I'm not sitting there hurting with you. I'm like, you're struggling with that. Okay. <laughs> It's not that I don't want to, it's just yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking about something. So I just, I think, I think I'd be a much better professor than I would be a pastor. I think I'm a little misplaced as a pastor. But I, I think it's what the Lord's wanted me to do, so that's what I've done. Yeah, but you are so people-oriented. You love discipling. I mean, there, I don't know, I think there will be a book written of Mark Dever someday, or at least a, a pamphlet or something. Yeah. I hope someone, <laughs> I hope someone will write a book. Um, well, it I won't hope, be me. No. Um, let me put in a plug. I hope, I hope Jonathan Lehman will write something someday because I think there is a lot to learn and there's a lot that the Lord has used through you and may he give you many more decades. But it, it will be one of the legacies will be the many, many men that you have poured your life into. How many years ago was it when the church surprised you and brought back interns and associate pastors and... It was my, maybe my 15th anniversary there, so 10 years ago. And how many, 20, how many men was that at that time? I don't know, 100 maybe. 100. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean by this time hundreds yeah. who are in ministry all over the world. Yeah. And, and one of the things Mark does really well, he's, he's confident and has this sort of, but you, you shouldn't mistake that for a vanity, because he's very humble in sharing a platform, in giving away your platform, in uh, one of the things I appreciate, and maybe it's from spending time uh, among the Brits, but you you always are going to undersell Hmm. what's happening, what you've done. I see people, even some who might be our friends or in our circles, who always, it's always the biggest, the best, It's, it's always overselling. And I don't know that I'm truly humble, but I'm at least proud enough to know what doesn't look humble <laughs> and to try and to not look like that. But I've always appreciated that you will undersell what, the, what, what you're doing, what the Lord is doing through yeah. you, and it's very refreshing. Does that come, is that just a, a personality thing? Is that studied? Oh, I think it's a personality thing, yeah. Just, yeah. You, it, it, you not, I, I don't per- need to be the center of everyone's thoughts and attention. And no, and I, you know, uh, like I say, even when I'm a non-Christian, I'm thinking this is going to be a skeleton in a box soon. And so I've got a real sense of the passing nature of life. So my importance is small. So I'm, yeah, it's not a big deal. Uh, at various times in conferences, and you've done this with Lig and 
course, Presbyterian and Baptist, and so there's differences and good, uh, honest disagreements, um, uh, striking at times, but, but playful at times too. I don't want to ask you about those. I want to ask you, I want to ask you, what do you see among Presbyterians that's encouraging? And let me tell you what, among many things, that I think are encouraging in evangelical Baptists. Yeah. I think uh, when, you, when you have an evangelical Baptist, you're going to find someone who's focused on the cross, the blood, heaven. You see that in Baptist hymns. That's yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. Jesus is coming back. You got to get saved. Uh, there's an earnestness to go, to share, to speak the gospel, to not lose sight of the main things. Jesus died for sinners. We got a message to tell these. So there are lots and lots of things, and I think that is a good leaven for Presbyterians, lest we be lost in our mm-hmm. thoughts or off and, and lose what is most central. So thank you for that. Uh, what, and you can, if you see dangers, but you know, what, what, what do Presbyterians have to offer for the broader Reformed, conservative, evangelical world. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll begin this with just a story. My uh, uncle used to tell me about his aunt, whom I knew, she was still alive when I was a child, lived in the same town. Uh, an interaction he had with her probably in the 1940s when he went to a Boy Scout service at the local Christian church, First Christian, Disciples of Christ, Alexander Campbell, immersion of believers, um, looks like a Baptist church, uh, but there are many in, in their theology. And, um, anyway, so uh, Uncle Bill goes to this Boy Scout service at the Christian church, and he comes home very excited and tells my aunt, who is uh, born in Kentucky, probably about 1900, never goes to college, uh, always served her dad, who's a Baptist minister, uh, never married, uh, strong Christian. Uh, he tells her, wow, Aunt Charlie, this was a, it's a great service. I, I really like that Christian church. It's a lot like the Baptist church. The Baptist church ever burns down, I'm going to the Christian church. And Aunt Charlie was very bothered by that. She said, you will not. She said, the Christian church may look like the Baptist church, but the Presbyterian church believes like the Baptist church. If the Baptist church ever burns down, you will go to the Presbyterian church. And it, she was in dead earnest about it. You know, so here's this uneducated woman in rural Kentucky in the 1940s. And there, you know, there is that, that commonality that is, uh, that's left there in our genetic makeup that Baptists and Presbyterians, you know, as, as dismissive as modern big Baptists may be of little Presbyterians, and as condescending as elite Presbyterians may be to, you know, workaday Baptists, uh, there is a genetic relatedness that is there in the concerns of mm-hmm. theology, in the categories that are used, in the authors that are cited, in the, in the mutual love of our, our, our Anglican friends. Uh, so there's a, the, in, in England, the three old denominations would be considered the, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and the Baptists. And they all came out of the Church of England in 1662 at the great ejection. Mm-hmm. And so there's great commonality between those four groups, the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, Congregations, and Baptists, differences only being polity and understanding of baptism. So having said all that, it's a great, great amount of appreciation. 
Uh, I would say clearly the, the learnedness of the Presbyterians is, is the great gift to the, the doers of the Baptists. You know, if we are the Romans of the evangelical world, you are the Greeks. We are the Greeks, yes. Uh, are, are you, do you call yourself an evangelical? Happily. Happily. And do you believe in a thing called evangelicalism? Uh, yes. Is it, is it worthwhile project? Uh, I, I think it, historically and sociologically it exists. Yeah. So how, how much you want to spend staring at it and studying it, I, I don't have a lot of interest in that, but I, would, I understand why some people would. Let me come in I, I'm interested more of a theological definition of evangelical, right. what should be, and teaching that. And when I'm, yes, and I'm interested in that, and I'm also asking about the, is, is it enough to have Baptists doing their Baptist thing, Presbyterians doing their Presbyterian thing, or in addition to doing that, is there also something good necessary called evangelicalism where we're doing things together, you started together for the gospel. That yeah. feels like an evangelical impulse. Yeah. Uh, you, you could describe it that way. That way. I would rather uh, use a less hegemonic term sure. to be, you know, trendy yeah. uh, and, and talking about being more Catholic, not Roman Catholic at all, but truly Catholic, truly universal, which doesn't demand us all get into the shape of the evangelical house, but rather lets the Presbyterian and the Missouri Synod Lutheran and the Anglican and the Baptist, you know, and the 4C Congregationalist and the, you know, MacArthurite Bible Church person all, all be their own, so they don't have to, you know, fit into our house, right. but us perceive in the Lutheran study Bible the germ of the gospel that we treasure, or in the work of RTS, or in Carl Henry's work as a Baptist theologian, you know, or, or in the history of congregationalism in New England like John Cotton, that in all of this we perceive the same truth. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little more interested in letting each of the traditions speak right. for themselves and rejoicing in all we have in common and commonly being in each other's churches and encouraging each other, but being true to our own Understandings. If you read the six volumes of God, Revelation, and Authority by Carl Henry, one of his uh, favorite philosophers to reference is Gordon Clark. Yeah. Whose grandson? Is our very own Nathan Clark George. Yes. The, 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 oh, yes, you should do and ah, yes, ask him. Uh, put, put philosophy to music. Do you think we are less together than we were, you who began together for the gospel? Yes. Why? Um, I, I, think, I think some of the we's are still together, as together. Uh, but I think uh, all kinds of sociological things from uh, race to politics to government response to COVID, all within a space of 2014 to, to 2020, right, yeah. just hit evangelical churches one after the other in a way that, man, if we're sitting around in 2012, we're not seeing that coming. And I've also postulated that with COVID, it wasn't, it was the responses, but it was also the reality that as everything is shut down, 
normally a lot of folks like us who would see each other often, conferences, traveling, speaking, overlapping, just that relational, it's, it's harder to say some things online if you had just saw the person yeah. in person. No, that can make you cowardly. Maybe you should say some, but some things. But there was a whole relational overlapping that was gone, yeah. and I think it just made it a lot easier. So, a lot of that was already happening, would have happened, but I, I just have to think that some of the things that played out would have happened in closed-door conversations before that, and maybe some of the, the worst excesses could have been avoided. Anything to that? Eh. Okay, you're not, you don't buy it? Oh, I mean, yeah, that, that maybe 2% of what went on, 1% of what went on. And what, what hope do you have? Give us, as we bring this to a close, if the tribes are splintered more than they were. Will there be helms deep? Yes, will the elves and men forge an alliance once more? They will. Yes. They will. Um, I think that the reality of hell, what we deserve, and the reality of God's grace in Christ will continue to overwhelm souls until Christ returns. And depending on when he returns, those souls are perhaps not even born yet. And those people will will perceive in each other their common indebtedness to the Lord. And that will outweigh their differences over baptism and polity. Anything else you wanted to say, Mark? Very thankful for you and your ministry. Um, very thankful that Christ's covenant called you to be their minister. Well, that uh, was I'd the known prompt, Kevin yeah. when he was up at his church in Michigan, had the joy of preaching for him up there, and knew this congregation through Harry Reader, and was very thankful to see the two brought together. I thought it was a great marriage. Uh, and I pray it's very good to be here. you're being kind to your Yankee pastor. They, oh, they are, yeah. He's a good man. He, he's a good man. He means well. If, <laughs> if he seems blunt, he's from Michigan. If he seems condescending, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of this stuff going on, but what a good work of God uh, he has does been done mean in his well. brother. No. And to the great profit of not only this congregation, but many of us around the place who use the books that he writes and reference blogs that he writes, and uh, I've the said Lord be- has given him a good brain. Uh, I've said before, one of my cousins used to say, that was our, would go on the family crest. We mean well. You can put that in Latin, <laughs> it would just be somewhere. So, Mark Dever, thank you for your friendship, thank you for thank being you. here, and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow morning. God bless. <laughs>